0: Now, one of the things that we try to do on Magnified is find people before they're famous. A lot of the interviewees that we've had have long track records, very established, and tell us the stories of how they've achieved what they've achieved. But we're also very interested in meeting people who we think are going to be very successful in the future. Now, you could argue that today's guest, maybe somebody you haven't heard of, but He has a growing reputation in business circles and has picked up a number of awards for his concept and for his development of it. Devin Hughes is the boss of Buy Me, which is a personalised shopping service. And you're going to hear all about it in this edition of Magnified. Devin Hughes, thank you very much for joining me here at my kitchen table for the latest of the Magnified podcasts. The last time I met you was at a conference. You were making a presentation for By Me. It's three or four, probably four years ago. So I was just interested in finding out where you're at because... So much has changed in the time since you made that presentation. But for those who aren't familiar, just tell us what your business is. Sure.
1: Um, well, look, thanks for having me, uh, man, in your lovely home with your lovely little pooch here beside me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's been a, it's been quite the journey, I think, in the last, let's say, 36 months or so since you and I last saw each other. Um, so for, for anyone who doesn't know, um, BuyMe is today Ireland's largest same-day grocery commerce platform. Um, we allow users to order grocery and household items from large enterprise retailers like Dunstores and Lidl uh, and Asda and Co-op in the UK and have their items delivered store-to-door in as little as an hour by their very own personal shopper.
0: Okay, that's a nice, simple, succinct way of actually describing it. How big is the business?
1: Um, well, a lot bigger since the last time you and I saw each other. Um so today, so I think when we, you know, pre-COVID, maybe I'll give some context, pre-COVID and where we are today. So pre-COVID, we were probably about, I want to say about 11 or 12 full-time employees um, with about 40 to 45 drivers, shop, personal shoppers. Um, and today uh, we are 68 full-time employees across uh, three countries um, with over 350 uh, active shoppers uh, working on the network. Uh, across six cities
0: tell us a little bit about how this operates because I mean, for the last couple of decades there have been supermarkets where you can go online you can fill out your shopping basket and it will be delivered to you by one of their trucks so what makes you different
1: um so the way we've approached uh, the concept of the last mile and i think the concept of e-commerce is probably is probably what sets us apart um and it's kind of what brought me into this sector in the first place. You're right. You know, for the best part of the last thirty years, we've had um, the online grocery delivery since kind of the onset of, of, of the dot com uh, era in the early nineties. Um, but that industry, uh, for the best part, has been heavily loss making for a very long time. Uh, and in fact, in 2014, when I first stumbled upon this sector and this vertical, because I'm not originally from grocery. Um, I read an article from the Grocer magazine that said the online grocery market was worth £9 billion um, total online spend across Ireland and the UK and it was losing £300 million a year. There was the aggregate losses of all the retailers combined trying to service this channel. And you know for the last 30 years the model for traditional uh, online grocery has been uh, vans and warehouses. Uh, large, expensive fulfilment centres like the ACADO CFCs, uh, which people have probably seen in, in, in various news bits and pieces. Um, they cost upwards of £100 million to build. Then they have to have a you know fully dedicated fleet, fixed employee base, and a whole lot that goes with it. Um, you know, we're the largest same-day grocery commerce platform in the country. We own no vans, we hold no stock, we have no warehouses. Um, you know, we sit on top of the existing infrastructure, i.e. grocery stores. And we turn those grocery stores into distribution centers, and we sweat those assets harder. Um, so it's far less capex. In fact, you know, a fraction of the capex required uh, to get to get a, a business like us up and running versus uh, traditional e-commerce.
0: Okay, so the popularity of this because I remember back, and I suppose just using my own personal experiences that twenty years ago we might have occasionally have used a delivery, and I know certainly Alien, my wife would have been always giving out that certain things aren't there that we'd ordered, they've been replaced with things we don't want, or the vegetables are not in the condition that she would have purchased if she was in the shop, or things had started going uh, soft because they weren't frozen anymore and they weren't delivered at the time we wanted. How do you get around all those issues?
1: Yeah, I mean, that 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 is, they're the, the biggest reasons, the biggest barriers, um, particularly pre-COVID that, you know, people have to, to transitioning into the online channel. Um, you know, over the last three years, people have been forced into the online channel to try it for the first time. And, and certainly adoption has significantly increased. Um, but when I, when I first started out, you know, when I approached kind of any startup and particularly this one, I did a huge amount of validation. Uh, through 2014, we didn't launch till 2016, so it was about two years of research work that went into the prep for Buy Me. uh One of the things I wanted to understand was, you know, why was the market not bigger? You know, the the grocery market, Ireland, UK is 250 billion, you know, and, and 2014, 9 billion of it was online. So I was, on, I wanted to understand what was the biggest reason why it hadn't become larger, and it was exactly that point. uh It came down to, you know, customers not feeling like they had. Appropriate representation in store, uh, poor substitutes and missing items, and ultimately what you know, we coined the term is door shock. You know, it's it's this shock the minute you open the door and realise that my fillet steak for dinner is not there, and I've, it's been swapped out with some own brand chicken steak. You know, <laughs> it's it's that uh, it's that really really you know kind of powerful customer experience that can really turn someone off a channel and they'll never go back, um, particularly with food, which is a really personal um, uh, category. And so, you know, when I launched ByMe, I was the very first personal delivery person. Um, you know, I, I did about in the first two years, I did about eighteen hundred deliveries. We were uh, I worked nine till ten, Monday to Sunday. Um, you know, servicing our earliest customers and and making all the mistakes. Um, you know, and the the single most important thing that I found was setting expectations for the customer throughout the journey now in the early days we had no technology it was just, i was you know customers we the only app, the only technology we have was a customer app where they could place an order but that order came into me as a spreadsheet um, on my phone and so you can imagine me in a grocery store reading through a spreadsheet on your phone trying to figure out which product is the one that they're asking for um, and First, so
0: time
1: oh massively time consuming yeah we had we had zero tech now we have a very very uh, complex technology infrastructure now but back then we didn't and uh, we had to learn not only learn all of the processes and then kind of reverse engineer, but also uh, collect data that we could then build you know, scalable infrastructure on. Um, but the one thing that stood out to me around customer experience was set the customer expectations every step of the way. And so um, what I focused on was I would contact the customer in the store before I checked out and I would walk through their list with them. Uh, and to date, um, every single one of our orders Uh, A customer can opt for a phone call from the store uh, before their shopper leaves. And so that means that their customer gets this opportunity to edit their basket in real time. And there's no door shock because actually their expectations have been managed long before the, the transaction has been finished.
0: Okay, but I'm just thinking through this as to how it works and how you can make it profitable as a service for you to offer in that you get your order you go to the supermarket, you fill out the order, you then have to take the bags packed back to your car or bike, depending on the size of the order, and you then have to get to the location and hope that the person is in to accept the order, particularly in an apartment block. That seems like very time-consuming for it's how much money?
1: incredibly time-consuming uh, and not for a lot of money. Um, grocery is a, a tight margin game um, uh, in, in, every, in every sense of the word. Um, the reality is is that it all comes down to time, as you very rightly put out, and how much time you can reduce. And the way we reduce time is through uh, measurement and technology. And so, um, in the early in the early years, it would take me. Uh, well, I'll, I'll, let me let me take it from the customer side all the way through to what we do today. The average consumer spends forty five minutes a week in a grocery store, and that's five and a half days a year, and that's twenty percent of your annual leave for the average employee
0: hadn't thought of it that way. No,
1: most, most don't. right? And then, um, You'll spend on average €55,000 over the course of your life just traveling to and from a grocery store. That's your parking, your petrol, etc. that goes in. These are all sunk costs that we, we just kind of live with because that's the way the world works. Um, the average consumer picks at a rate of 2.3 minutes per item when they're in store. Um, and the average basket has about 35 items in it, hence that you, know, you get up to that kind of 45, 50, 60-minute kind of range. Um, you know, when we first lo- launched, I was a professional shopper, so I was going in without you know the, the the worry of decision fatigue. I was going in picking baskets, and and even then, it was taking me uh, on average two hours to do maybe two or three orders, uh, or well, yeah, maybe two orders uh, at a time. When we started to scale up, it was taking us ninety six minutes on average, including travel time per order, to fulfil twenty eight euros. It was costing us per order to fulfil. Um, and over the last three years, we have been able to cut that in half. It now, We now are doing, um, on average, 40, I think 48 minutes is, is probably 48, 46 minutes per order is what, what it takes us to do, um, but we have built really complex technology we call Jarvis, which is our routing and fulfillment engine and algorithm, and we now bundle orders of a very similar nature together based on the products that are in the basket, the retailer that they've been uh, there to be picked up in, uh, the customer's locations, traffic conditions, where the whole lot gets uh, calculated. Um, and we're now uh, we've now been able to cut the cost of fulfilment from twenty eight sixty down to uh, sub uh, fourteen euros, um, and that's true technology, and that's looking at every single minute of our process and building uh, systems that allow us to, to to shave time. But
0: that then implies are your customers willing to pay fifteen euro plus for their delivery?
1: Well, that's how much it costs us per order for the work that's been done we then spread that cost across uh, customers. So um, our shoppers when in-store will pick up to three orders at a time today um, and over 60% of our volume is fulfilled in what we call three-order bundles. So we're spreading that cost and that time across across multiple customer orders. Um, and the reality is, is that the, t- the cost that comes to the customer is also dependent on where they decide to shop and when they decide to shop. Um, we have probably one of the most flexible slot selection uh, offerings for customers. You can choose, and to your point earlier on, you know, you, you choose a slot where we're delivering and hoping the customer's in. We deliver uh, primarily within a 60-minute window, where traditional e-commerce delivers within a two-hour window. We have the option for a customer to choose a 60-minute window where their food will be delivered within that time frame. So, you know, you're not kind of waiting around. You're able to make more of your day. Um, but we also recently launched a new, a new offering for customers because, um, you know, through qualitative studies, we were able to understand that certain customers want certain things. And we released a four-hour slot. Which would surprise you, right? It surprised me certainly did, Um, and we were able to drop the cost of that uh, by a euro because actually the more time that we have, the more time Jarvis has to bundle more effectively and remove kilometers from the 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 process, remove time from the process, and we can drop that cost to the consumer. We also launched um, Buy Me Plus, which is similar to a subscription model like Prime. and that allows customers to get free delivery, unlimited, uh, on a, on baskets over €40. Euros. So they can have as many deliveries they want a month uh, on over €40. Euros. And, and now, um, nearly 40% of our business and 25% of our user base is through our members, our membership. Their baskets are bigger, their frequency is bigger. Um, and so that lends itself really well to driving down that cost.
0: Okay, there's a lot to unbundle in all of that. Um, but still, how much does it actually cost on average for a person Either to be a member or to actually have their shopping delivered to them. So for membership,
1: it costs seventy nine ninety five for an annual membership, or nine ninety five per month. Um, for delivery, it costs four ninety nine um, for a four hour slot, or five ninety nine for a sixty minute slot. Um, there's then also a platform fee, and that varies depending on the retailer you shop in, and um, that can range anywhere from five percent to thirteen percent.
0: We are, of course, in a high inflation environment at present, and particularly food prices are becoming more expensive for people. But from the sounds of this, this isn't aimed at the budget shopper, is it? This is for more affluent people.
1: Not necessarily, uh, Matt. So, if if again, going back to that that time spent, um, um, if you're earning over €15 an hour, Um, then you probably shouldn't be doing your own grocery shopping, because your time is worth more than that. Um, If you're doing, um, if you take into account, um, Ireland has the highest dependency on cars in Europe, Um, and right now we're not just in an economic crisis, we're in an energy crisis, we're in a fuel crisis. Uh, Getting into your car has become significantly more expensive. Um, And then you think about just the pure customer pattern, that, that 45 minutes a week that's spent in a store, Impulse purchasing is a big part of how basket inflation starts to happen uh, in your shopping. What we're finding is that more and more people, not just for save on fuel, but actually to get more control over their their list and their shopping habits, they're actually moving into the online channel um, to be able to control their spend a little bit more.
0: So how then do the retailers deal with that, given that they like people making those impulse purchases, which is why, for example, when you reach the till, you have all the chocolate bars and all the other goodies that they actually try and get you as a last minute purchase? Yeah.
1: And that is, that is a strategy for the in-store shopper. But for retailers, um, the big focus is, what, is omnichannel. And actually, what's been proven over the last 10 years or so is that an omnichannel customer is 20% more valuable than just a single uh, channel in-store customer. And, the, and it sounds a bit strange. Just explain it? omnichannel. So omnichannel is having multiple channels in which a customer can access your brand and offering. Um, so if, it, if you're just an in-store brick-and-mortar retailer, you're, you're a single channel. That's the only way they can access it. If you have an online channel, you have more than one way that a customer can access that offering. And what's really important, when we, when we launched our very first partnership um, in Ireland, one of the big questions that we had to solve for was uh, incrementality. Because you know, our retail partners contribute. They, they, they lean in, they invest, they give us a revenue share that allows us to reduce the cost for the customer. And so a retailer has to be able to justify that this is a valuable investment and that ultimately it's not going to be margin dilutive. Um, and what we found was that the vast majority of volume that comes through is incremental for two reasons. When customers shop through the online channel, their basket is three and a half times larger on average than an in-store basket and they frequent the brand more often. So it means that they have more frequent, more access, more convenient access to their favourite brands, means they'll be shopping in that brand more often and they won't end up going to other retail brands.
0: So the supermarkets have bought into us because wasn't there one that tried to injunct you originally from actually going into the supermarkets and picking up baskets for people? The heady days of
1: 2016. Um, yeah, that is true. Um, we we I have I mean, the way I've thought, like, we kind of found ourselves as accidental disruptors. Um, You know, I launched in 2016. Within five weeks, I got our first cease and desist letter uh, from a retailer, um, uh, kind of threatened to shut us down. know they had their reasons and you know we had been very open and transparent with and we always have been with the industry and i think that's a big part of how we've managed to get to where we are today is we've managed to build trust with the industry at large by by sharing our knowledge our insights and learnings um in in that at that stage i was i was doing deliveries like i said i just quit my job um in salesforce actually uh where i was working previously and um i was out there doing deliveries bright-eyed and bushy (laughs) tails ready to build this business um, and we got our we got a legal letter in the door telling us to to, to shut down which was you know, really challenging because you know obviously retailers are who we've built this for and um, they're the stakeholder that we're trying to solve the the, the problem for and uh, not to mention the consumer but the retailer is the one bearing all that loss uh, currently in the channel so um, it was dis- it was disappointing that we, we we found that but you know when I look back you know we really Leverage that. We turned that into into a a story of disruption, um, and and that became a, a kind of a big part of our narrative.
0: But you didn't come out of being a tech company as such. You've developed as a tech company since.
1: Um, well, we knew we always knew we were going to be a technology company. Um, so you know, my, my background is not technology or, or grocery. Uh, in fact, actually, I, my, my early part of my career was spent in the energy sector. So I worked with large retailers, manufacturers uh, to hedge and trade gas electricity contracts. It's primarily a, a financial exercise. Um, I then spent the latter half of my, mar- my tenure working in an area called demand side management um, with the national grid operator, which was you know a concept that allowed the national grid operator to Balance supply and demand in the market by moving volume more dynamically around a network. Um, and I found this concept really fascinating. And what really struck me was when I started, you know, I spent about six months diving into grocery long before I decided to, to make this move. What I realized very quickly was that actually grocery shares a huge amount of characteristics with electricity. Um, you know, in what way I'm glad you asked Matt I'm glad you asked so um, there's two primary uh, ones is, is, is scale and size so the residential electricity market in the UK for example is 13 billion uh, online grocery was 9 billion is now 26 billion um, in size so I mean there's not many markets in one country as big as that like one, uh, so industries the second was demand curve and when you're building a distribution network, and for me, the, the biggest flaw with traditional online grocery is the distribution network, um, uh, let, let me maybe frame it this way. It, it, the only reason, and we're sitting in your lovely home here, the only reason you have power and heat in your home uh, or your business today is uh, because we use one infrastructure, one electricity grid, one gas network, and we all share the cost. If we had separate networks all trying to compete with one another, it would be prohibitively expensive to have this utility. Um, We have today 18 distribution networks, uh, give or take, for grocery, all doing the same thing, all competing with each other and all removing the ability to reach real efficiency and economies of scale and network effects. And so the concept for Me started out as building one shared infrastructure that all grocers could feed, load uh, uh, load pool uh, their volume into, like we do with the electricity grid, um, and, and use that network as a more efficient tool to distribute this commodity. And that's what grocery is, it's commoditized in every way. Um, The final thing that's really important and the characteristic that that I found really exciting was, you know, when I first launched, I wasn't sure if we were just going to do grocery or if we would do other things like, you know, burgers and chips and iPads, you know. Um, And uh, what I quickly realized was that actually the most important thing to manage a decentralised network is your demand curve, how you balance supply and demand in your network. uh, Like the electricity grid say, is very important, hence that demand side management piece. Um, and uh, and gross, grocery and electricity have a bell curve distribution, and um, so it takes off in the morning. People start ordering their groceries and flicking on their kettles at nine and ten in the morning. It peaks between three and seven PM, and then it cools down. Now that's really good for a network because you're able to ramp your network and cool your network. Um, if you take another category, let's say hot food delivery. Uh, like Deliveroo for example I was about to
0: ask you about Deliveroo and Just Eat because you're very similar in your business
1: uh, well uh, similar in certain capacities and very different in others but um, let's take their demand curve right hot food dead in the morning spike at lunch dead in the afternoon spike at dinner so you have these this Batman Uh, Problem, right? Where you have these two spikes in the day and then this dead zone in the middle. That's incredibly difficult if you're operating a decentralized labor network because what you're doing is you're asking people to come uh, to facilitate supply or or labor. Um, And then once the peak is over, you're asking them to go away for four hours and then come back in the evening time. It's very disruptive and doesn't really work at a human level uh, for, 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 for labor. And so that's where a lot of friction has come within the gig economy, uh, which was essentially built in its very earliest form around hot food as a category because of its high frequency and distribution nature. Um, but actually, grocery is a much better uh, n- uh, category uh, to manage decentralized networks because of that bell curve. Um, and so that's, 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 they're the, the elements that Guy got really excited about.
0: Well, I, as I just said to you, I do see an enormous amount of similarities with Deliveroo Just Eat, such as you know, people going picking up food ordered online from a restaurant and delivering it to houses. But you say you're very different in what way?
1: Very different. I mean, it's as, as different as comparing a restaurant to a grocery store. Um, so, I mean, think about um, the, let's, let's think about the shoppers, right? The people doing the labor. Very different experience. Um, if you're hot food, you're either on a motorbike or a bicycle. You're exposed to weather conditions. Um, you're racing in and out of cars. Um, high level, you know, there's a much much more kind of, uh, well, let's say risk level attached to that type of work. And you're only doing A to B. You're picking up a package, delivering a package. Um, our personal shopper spends more than 50% of their time in a grocery store being a personal shopper communicating with the customer over the phone picking the items out checking out etc the um, our average bundle has 120 plus items which means we don't use mopeds and bicycles so all of our shoppers are in cars not exposed to the weather um, and and then uh, we're delivering in really tight zones because actually we've got much bigger baskets and so the actual margin uh, is is better the unit economics are easier um, because you're dealing with larger baskets our, our average va- our average order value is three or four times larger than an average delivery order. And so that helps itself cover the labour cost because delivery's labour costs and my labour cost is, is identical. But I have a bigger AOV and therefore I have better economics to play around with and make sure that our, our shoppers are able
0: to earn well. How are your labour costs identical? Because it would strike me that the workers that you have who are doing the personal shopping spend more time on a particular order they then have to use their own car, which is more expensive to actually go and deliver. So, how do they recompense? Do they on a per job basis or per hour basis? Well, if you
1: think about, if you think about when I when I say the labour is the same, um, the compensation might be structured different. But y- you know, people need to earn a certain uh, livable wage on an hourly basis, right? So we all have the same target at an hourly level to get to. How much volume is put through that hour? Can dictate how you structure it and whether that's easier or more difficult. Um, so when I say it's, we have the same the same uh, challenge in terms of uh, in terms of providing cost. It's it's that hourly wa- uh, wage that we need our 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 uh, contractors to be able to get to. Um, so in that sense, because that's a big part of it. Um, you're right. Our shoppers have their car, cars and stuff, but again, because they're spending more time in a grocery store and not time, they're not an Uber driver which you spend your full time in your car. They're actually spending 50% of their time or more in a grocery store, not driving. And when they are driving, they're driving in very tight, densely populated zones because grocery is ubiquitous. It's everywhere and everyone needs it. Um, these, are, these are the reasons why the category lends itself really well to this, to this model. Um, and so they're, they're the kind of I think the core differences. I know we started off on why is electricity and grocery the same, but they're the, they're the elements that I got super excited about back in, in 2014, 2015, uh, to kind of go in this direction.
0: Yeah, but just before I want to go back a little bit more about you and your motivation, but just explain a little bit more in relation to the the workers that you get as the personal shoppers. And they're not full-time employees. They're gig economy type workers, are yeah, they? Yeah. Picking their own hours. Correct. Well, uh, how difficult easy is it to find the people who will provide the level of service that you have actually explained
1: yeah um i would uh, i would not say it's easy um but we have been able to scale very effectively Um, and the way the way we've approached it is very much the same way we think about customers it's it's about creating a good acquisition uh, funnel and strategy to identify the right people for the, to participate in the platform um, in, in that way. Um, you know, one of the things that's lent itself to us, I think, is that this type of work appeals to quite a broad demographic. And so I'll break out maybe our shopper network for you. We have um, 18 different nationalities. Um, we have age ranges from 18 to 62. Um, and that is the, the kind of broad range of people that are uh, attracted by the, the type of work. The average number of hours on a weekly basis is in the region of 25 to 27 and a half hours. So it's very much a part-time work. And the majority of the shoppers have a second job, um, either in the retail industry or in the services industry uh, or are semi-retired. And so that is the type of uh, demographic that we're open to and that we work with. And so that gives us quite a quite a broad range, that, and that helps find you know, good people in that mix.
0: And what are they earning?
1: Um, on average, a shopper earns about 12 81 an hour, I think, at the moment, including tips. You know, and again, this is a personal, this isn't just a courier job A to B, you're connecting with customers. Um, 28% of our orders get tipped out, the average tip is €5 Euros, and that means that the average shopper is earning an extra hour, euro per hour uh, just from the tips and the quality of service that they provide. So there's a really great incentive for them to really lean into that and, and have accountability.
0: Devon, what I'm also interested in though is, you say the background that you had in demand management and energy and whatever. What motivated you to actually go and form a business?
1: Well, was my fifth business. I've had four spectacular little failures before this, and no one's ever heard of. Um,
0: Doing what sort of things?
1: Oh, man, everything and anything. Um, I started my first business um, with a very good friend of mine, Gareth Flower, in 2011, uh, importing electric golf trolleys from China. We thought we saw a gap in the market for a reasonably priced golf trolley, and um, we decided to uh, drum up Twenty-eight thousand euros and and bought uh, 182 uh golf trolleys in a 40 foot container and shipped them over from china
0: that sounds uh, like a very good idea our yeah.
1: final year of college well it would be if you didn't do it in the middle of a recession um uh, where golf clubs were coming under a little bit of pressure um i would say my 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 ability to to look at spot macro trends maybe was not as as uh, as home back then um because you know sure enough we landed the 180 golf, golf trolleys in ireland and um Started having to sell them. We start driving. We drove around the country, um, knocking door to door into golf clubs uh, and selling them into into pros into the golf pros. Um, but sure enough, I mean, many golf pro shops ended up going bust, and we ended up out of pocket quite a bit. I think we barely barely washed our face, and I think we lost about three or four or five grand um, on that first venture. Um, we then end up. Sorry, what did you learn from that, though? Oh, everything. I learned everything. I learned. I learned about you know brand development. We developed our first brand sport golf. I um, uh, learned about uh, um, uh, you know not well door to door sales I had done before uh, working for electricity and and the like so I had kind of experience with that. Um, Learned about bad debt management <laughs> and cash flow. Um, they were pro- they were probably the big lessons learned uh, in in that business. Um, but yeah, I mean, I look back at it very fondly now. It was like a, it was like doing a masters in entrepreneurship. It cost me a few quid, but it was uh, it was a real practical experience.
0: It probably taught you about timing as well. Because with golf booming again now, you'd probably do very well with something. Yeah,
1: probably flow. right. And um, and and the, and and that was the thing. I think back in those days. You know, I, I ran headfirst into business ideas and, um, you know, that it would just, it would take a good conversation over a pint and all of a sudden I was gone, um, ex- trying to execute.
0: So um, that was the first one. What was the second one? The
1: second one was, um, we. it was actually in the end, that was when I started to get into the energy industry a little bit. We started, uh, uh, um, uh, we wanted to build a wind farm actually in Longford. Um, myself and Gareth again, and um, we we went down a, a fairly reasonable track on that. We ended up getting involved with a US company, spent some time over there, smart uh, internet of things LED company, when internet of things wasn't even a thing uh, back then, and uh, and kind of cut our teeth there again. Struggled to get that up on its up on its up on its feet. Um, we were actually developing what what is now a company called Urban uh, Urban Vault. Um, uh, by a guy called Kevin Mon, excellent company, um, which was essentially a company that installed LED lights um, and uh, into into large industrial facilities and creates a really interesting cash flow um, uh, product off that investment product. Um, but we didn't have the experience or the capability to execute, so we, uh, it, we it didn't it didn't go the way we wanted to. Um, Garrett then actually went off and, and built a very good business called Cross Bakery and, and built a very large Whole Foods uh, wholesale um, donut business and bread business. Um, and I I wanted to take a bit of a break. Um, after startups, I did one or two small things, app development and, and web design, uh, with a couple of friends after that, but that didn't, that didn't go anywhere. And, you know, I kind of found myself wanting to take a break from startups, you know, kind of wanted to recover, you know, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, <laughs> and financially, um, from the process. And so I decided to take a, a break and I went, worked, um, for, uh, an energy company for, for two and a half years, um, and kind of started to, I felt like, you know, some, something wasn't working. And I was missing some experience and if I went and worked for a, a reasonably st- uh, sized business I might start to understand um, what a what a, a successful company could or should look like um, and so I went in um, to a company called Value, doing 100 million turnover a year they had about 30 employees at the time which was great I got exposure to the founder I got exposure to the finance director the operations director uh, I was able to get around the business and meet everybody and learn um, really enjoyed it and uh, and that's when uh, the, the idea for buy me came about.
0: There's two other companies you haven't mentioned, so well, two LFA so, ventures.
1: So the well the app development and the web design was the was the third. Uh, the fourth was uh, was <laughs> was just before buy me. You could say maybe the prelude to buy me, um, was a company called Pay Me, which I'm not very creative with names apparently. Um, and that was uh, how I met my co founder actually. So I was working on this concept uh, called PayMe, which was a, an idea for a biometric payment system. Um, uh, the, the idea came about was that um, if you could link your credit card to your fingerprint, you could then pay by touch rather than having to uh, carry physical cards and stuff around, which at the time sounded like a cool idea and, and fairly uh, novel. Um, and so I, I, uh, put, we put the, this idea up on, on uh, Upwork or Odesk which is a kind of a gig economy platform for developers. And um, my now co-founder, Art, um, he had a small development company in Armenia, and he bid for the tender. It was like four or five grand that I'd put up, and uh, he won. And we ended up working for six, six or seven months together uh, building this prototype for this biometric payment, which we did. We completed it. And, um, and I said, thank you very much, and I gave him the 5,000 euros, and uh, I then went and shopped. That prototype around to Enterprise Ireland and to a couple of investors to try and get that that opportunity going, and then Apple Pay launched, and uh, I thought, right, I need to take this one behind the barn, and uh, and and move on. And um, I was actually, I was, we were drowning in our sorrows about that about that venture in uh, the Gingerman Pub uh, when online grocery came into the conversation, and uh, shortly after that, by Me uh, became a, a thing.
0: But actually, if you had that issue that Apple Pay comes along and effectively by the scale of Apple blitz your idea out of it, I mean, how worried would you be that something like Buy Me is similarly going to be done by an Amazon? Like you've used Amazon Prime as an example earlier that they will move into this area as well, particularly as they've shown in the United States by buying Whole Foods, that they are interested in food and grocery area.
1: And actually, the Amazon Whole Foods deal changed our entire future. Um, so in 2017, June 2017, I ran out of cash, would buy me. Um, I had raised 100,000 euros before. So, little prelude, I, I quit the energy markets in, uh, at the end of 2014 after I got comfortable that this was going to be a thing. We realized it was going to be a technology company, to your question earlier on, and I went to work for Salesforce for a year to figure out what a platform technology company looked like. And so uh, you probably see that like, I have a bit of a trend of kind of going specifically to work for somewhere to learn about something before I do the next thing. So um, so I did a year to the week in Salesforce, joined in February 2015, quit in February 2016, my master's in platform. And uh, during that time, built the prototype for buy Me and raised 100,000 euros of, of pre-seed capital from Enterprise Ireland, one investor and some friends and family. And, um, uh, we quit, became the first delivery person. And, um, and then we managed to to make money. We were re- revenue generating quite quickly. So, uh, which is great when you're a, a consumer business and, um, and then, but June, come June, 2017, um, I was at the end of the the cash runway. And, uh, I remember sitting in a, in a Starbucks in Stillorgan. Oregon. I had, I had three other shoppers working with me at that time. One of which is still with me and works in the business full time now. Um, and, uh, I paid the last bit of salaries and I had 1200 euros left in the account. And I spent the whole day sitting in that Starbucks waiting for an investment from Unilever, which had been just agreed, um, just in time. <laughs> um, and I was waiting for that 100,000 euros to land so that I could continue doing what I was doing because otherwise I was gonna have to you know, close up shop and get a, a real job. Um, and uh, sure enough, half for that day, the 100K landed and that gave us enough time to keep going. Six months after that day, Amazon bought Whole Foods, and that changed the whole landscape for us. Because remember, what you said about earlier on was that retailers obviously didn't get what we were trying to do in the early part. They thought we were disruptive. They thought we were competitive. They thought we were just, yeah, not for them. When Amazon bought Whole Foods, that changed the expectations of every single grocer in the world. And um, The stock price of every, every major uh, retail, grocery retailer in the UK even uh, nose-dived off the announcement of that deal. Because actually what people realised was that online grocery wasn't going to be what it was today. It was going to be something very different because now the largest e-commerce digital technology company in the Western world had just entered the category. Um, and so that created a real moment in time um, and a, a bunch of things happened very quickly after that. Uh, a business like us called Shipped, in the US uh, was bought by Target as a direct active to compete with Amazon going into Whole Foods. Uh, Target acquired, shipped for 550 million dollars. Lidl had a small operation in the US, was partnered with shipped, and that partnership was working really well for them in the US. They then approached us in uh, Europe as one of the few players in Europe doing this same uh, technology play and they approached us and said this model works really well for us in the US, would you be interested in a partnership? Um, And so that allowed us to establish our first enterprise partnership uh, off the back of it. But I I pegged the Amazon Whole Foods deal as a catalyzing event for us, which made retailers think about what their strategy was going to be going forward.
0: But then, Devon, is it possible that you actually haven't scaled up enough in the time since that you're actually... Too small compared to what you should be.
1: That's a great question and one I, I probably get posed uh, quite a bit by uh, by shareholders and investors. Um, I mean, look, the reality is is that you know you're scaling a, scaling a consumer business out of Ireland is incredibly challenging. Um, there's very few, in fact, I would say probably we're one of the better known consumer businesses to come out of Ireland in, in the past, you know, five years, maybe a decade. Um, we're a small market. And so that, that creates challenges of its own. Um, it's easy to scale, a, well not easy, I won't say easy, but it's easier to scale a consumer business in a large market, say China, uh, the us um uh, and even even the uk you
0: said the european union yeah. even though well, there's multiple uh, the Europe, languages the european
1: union is a little bit harder because multiple languages multiple legislative territories um what what is better about the likes of china uh even russia uh or the us and the uk is that you have one big territory relatively stable a uh, similar or a uh, homogenous legislation environment and so that that makes certain things easier um but uh yeah, so to, i mean to your question could we be bigger should we be bigger i mean you know we've grown our we've scaled our revenue six thousand nine hundred percent in the last three years. Um, you know, we've raised eighteen million to date and um, you know, we've launched internationally um and we're we're you know looking to scale um even more. But you know it's it's challenging out there. And then and now facing into the market that we're in, it's also uh, headwinds that we need to deal with.
0: Yeah, and since people started going back to their more normal day-to-day life since COVID. Have people returned to shopping, despite all the things you said about the time management issues of it, that actually there are people who like getting out of their house and going and doing these things, and if they are more concerned about the cost of food going up and their budgets have been stretched. I mean, is that not going to be a challenge for you to develop this business?
1: I think there's a variety of different ways you need to think about it. It's it's really not black and white because there's so many different uh, avenues and options for customers. Um, So maybe to put some numbers to it, which I think is always helpful, um, Pre-COVID, uh, online grocery penetration in Ireland was uh, 2%, maybe, uh, best 2.5%. Um, and in the UK, it was uh, in the region of 7 7%. 7%. Uh, peak COVID, online spend reached north of 15% in the Irish market. So that's how much of the market all of a sudden adopted online for the first time now we've seen contraction people have returned to store hospitality has opened again so a low i mean the entire fmcg grocery industry is down year on year because they're not getting that hospitality revenue um but the online grocery market is still twice the size it was pre covid now even with normal habits having returned so more people have adopted roughly i'd say three to five years worth of online adoption has happened in a very short window of time um and uh, and now the, the market is still larger than it was today um so that kind of gives you the sense of of where it got to and where it's now back to at that, at that point. Um, and so these, these are, the, the I think, the elements. When it comes to customers, how they shop and how they will shop, I'm an in-store shopper, but I'm also a, an online shopper. Um, I love cooking. And when I when I'm going to cook a meal, I pop into the store to buy uh, specific ingredients that I want because I'm quite picky about uh, what 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 I, what I want to get at, at any given time. And I might need to go to specialty stores to get certain things that I want as well. So in that channel, in that moment, I'm an in-store shopper. Vast majority of our spend is through online for. Our toilet paper, our shop, our know, washing up liquids, you know, the kind of the non-consequential, more commoditized items uh, that we would use uh, go through our online channel.
0: You mentioned that you've raised 8 million, 18 million euro to date uh, from a w- wide variety of shareholders. Um, but how much more are you going to have to, to develop the business? And are you going to end up sort of being consistently diluted from your ownership position?
1: I mean, um, ownership is... is is one aspect of it, I think being an entrepreneur, um, and and you know also then you know depending on the business that you're raising, your funding strategy is going to be shaped by the type of business that you're raising, um, and ownership is very subjective. I mean, if you have if you've one percent of a billion dollar company and 100% one hundred percent of a million dollar company, I don't you know I don't think you're going to complain too much, right? So uh, for me, ownership is is. Is a matter of where the business is at any given time and what are the resources that we need to to, to execute on the on the goals that we have, um, and so in that instance, I I think about it that way. Uh, different businesses will have different funding strategies. The big focus for us, and I explained it earlier on, like you know, it was costing us. We were doing ninety six minutes per order, costing us twenty eight euros uh, an order. You know, we were losing a significant amount of money on every single order back in twenty sixteen, and um, we took this business contribution positive on a per order basis. Um, in uh, Dublin in our first and most mature city in April of 2021. Um, We then took the whole business contribution positive, uh, which means we're making money on orders um, at the end of Q3 uh, 2021. uh, And we've managed to improve that consistently every month since. Um, And so that's the scale starting to kind of kick in. And and every time we improve efficiency and improve economics, it means less capital required into the future. um, And that's where you get a business to to a steady state. But any multi-sided marketplace like us requires capital to scale.
0: And are you going to be able to get it given that now the tech sector is in bother and it seems that there's a reluctance on the part of investors to put money into the tech sector?
1: Yeah, and again, capital capital uh, markets are certainly being affected at the moment. Um, I thought i heard re- one really great stat. Uh, 20, now this is about three or four months, so forgive me if, if there's any amazing corporate finance guys out there that think I'm, I'm talking poppycock. Uh, this might be a bit out of date, but um, 2021, 20, the European markets raised and deployed 280 billion euros of venture capital uh, funding. Um, three or four months ago, when I heard this stat, we our run rate for the year was only 70 billion. Right, so that's how much change has happened at a at a, at a venture capital level. Um, grocery food delivery has become less attractive overall. Uh, in in that's in that uh, the industry kind of pigged out during the COVID times. 15 billion went into the online grocery market globally. Uh, during that 24-month period. So a huge, huge amount of capital went in. Um, and, uh, and now, venture capital also is changing at a stage level. So earlier stage businesses... Um, may find it slightly harder to get capital from VC um, whereas and where, company, where investors are trying to move capital into later stage businesses that have a little bit less risk attached. And so that, that's going to be the kind of thing that I, any business, ourselves included, need to think about uh, as we go and fundraise. How do we make our, our euros last longer? How do we extend our uh, horizons? And how do we invest more, uh, um, we'll say conservatively, um, as, as we deal with a, a changing venture market.
0: You mentioned earlier that there was a, was a business in the United States, similar to yours, that was bought out when Amazon bought out Whole Foods. Would you look, are you building this business to sell it?
1: Um, not, not particularly. I often get asked questions, like, right? You always get asked questions when you start a business, like, what's the exit? You know, every investor asks, what's the exit? Uh, and every smart employee probably asks the same thing, right? Um, but the reality is that an exit is, is is very subjective to the market that you find yourself in at any given time. Um, I think, you know, 70 to 80% of exits for technology businesses is through private sale. That's just statistically um, the the way the way technology companies um, typically experience an exit, there's then you know IPOs and all the rest that can go that you can go through. I think you know for us, I've not spent a huge amount of time focusing on exit. I've spent as much more time thinking about execution. The exit will be a byproduct of whatever market condition we find ourselves in and how well we execute. And so, kind of dealing with it in that sense, that's kind of the way I focus my time and energy.
0: How obsessional is it as an entrepreneur? And also, given that you have a young family, well you have a young son, about two years of age, That's if you're, how much time do you end up giving to this job and how does it impact on everything else? Um,
1: so I, do, I, I probably about 60 hours a week is probably the real time commitment it takes um, for, at least for a scaled business anyway. I mean, in the early days I was doing nine till 10, Monday to Sunday. That's the truth for two hours, or sorry, for two years. Um, so, I mean, that was uh, that was quite an intense period. You know, I would have to leave family dinners and even at the cinema, I'd be ducking out uh, halfway through the movie because an order had came in and I there was no one else to do it. And if I didn't do it, we wouldn't capture the sale. We wouldn't acquire that customer. We wouldn't have a retention data. Our KPIs would be impacted. So you just had to do it. And
0: how did your wife deal with all these very, explanations? Yeah, well,
1: my, 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 my girlfriend at the time, my now wife, so that kind of tells you how, that she managed to put up with... But up with it, she was incredibly supportive throughout that whole process. She understood what it, what it was that I was trying to achieve. And oftentimes, you know, was in the car with me, uh, you know, going, helping me do orders and, and all the rest that went with it. So um, I think for any entrepreneur, having a support network around them is going to be is incredibly important. You know, support of family, parents, uh, partner. And that makes the, the journey a hell of a lot easier.
0: And where does this desire to be an entrepreneur come out of? And for what reason do you continue with it?
1: Uh, Good it's a good question. Um, I I think, you know, the things I was I was recently asked, you know, what do I like about being an entrepreneur? And, and the two things that came to mind was, you know, people and problems. I really like working with people. Uh, and to be a really great entrepreneur, you need to be good at working with people and you need people, right? You need you need customers, you need suppliers, you need staff. You need investors. It's all around people, um, and, and I enjoy and I enjoy spending time with people and connecting at a human level. Um, and then I really like complex problems. Um, I, you know, that's probably the the part that I really got hooked on. The obsession, if you will, um, was around this nine billion market losing three hundred million pounds a year. That sounds like a big, big problem. Um, and I've spent seven years now trying to solve that problem
0: because you could probably do that working within a company.
1: Um, working within a company, be it... Sorry, that's
0: somebody else's.
1: Yeah, you, I mean, well, when you're working within a company, you're beholden to the strategy dictated by the owners of that business. Um, and so I don't think I could have ever built this solution within a grocery business. Um, I, I had to be outside the industry. I had to be somewhat removed to be able to do things that perhaps was seen as not the done thing um we you know, we really broke everything apart reverse engineered it and put it back together in a very different way um and i don't think when you're in the fishbowl it's very hard to uh, have a, a perspective or a vantage point that allows you to think about how, how something might work differently
0: although there does come a time presumably even in bimby where you have your investors and directors on your board who are telling you to focus in a particular way correct
1: and that comes down to the people. And, and I think, for, again, for any great entrepreneur who, the, the board you build, uh, the team you build around you, you want people that are going to challenge you, challenge your perspective, uh, urge you to consider alternative options uh, at any given time. And it's your job as the founder, the CEO, the entrepreneur, whatever title you want to put to it, it's your job to, uh, you're kind of like a glorified analyst, right? Your job is to collect as much market intelligence and information as possible, be it from the people around you and from the people outside your organization. And then you need to distill that information down and develop a strategy that's going to be effective off the back of that. Um, and that means collecting input and hearing the advice, opinions and thoughts of others, uh, but not necessarily taking everything as gospel.
0: Okay, and it's something like Eamon Quinn has been essential to you Not is it Fergal Quinn's son?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm mass- I mean... Uh, I I met Eamon in 20... A lot of people think that there was some sort of a family friend connection with Eamon. I I met Eamon at a conference. Um, I took a day off in 2017 doing deliveries, uh, turned off all our slots to go to Futurescope because I needed to stop doing deliveries to find investors. I had to split my time. Um, And so I took a day, went to Futurescope, and a uh, a friend of mine, a guy called Richie Donlan, um, who was doing the videography for Futurescope... Uh, I said to him, I said, oh, I need to find investors. I only have this day off and you know I need to make I need to make the most of it. Um, and he said, Oh there's Eamon Quinn from Dragon's Den. You know, he 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 his family around Super Quinn, he'd be a perfect investor. Um, come on, I'll introduce you. I was like, wow, you know Eamon Quinn? He was like, No, but I have a camera and everyone wants to talk to the guy with the camera. So he brought me over, and he says, Eamon, Amen. I just need to get a shot of you, uh, you know, talking. Here's Devin. Devin's actually working on something really interesting. I think it's right up your alley. I'll just be over here, and I'll be back in a minute. And I had this thirty second uh, uh, elevator pitch opportunity with Eamon and I explained to him what I was trying to do. Um, and I had this rule, you know, if I'm going to pitch someone, uh, I, I, I give them a very uh, clear sense of how much time I'm going to take—thirty seconds." And I stick to that thirty seconds, and I don't bend their ear. I give them an out and an exit, and, I, and at the end of the thirty seconds, I say, "But I'd love to to, to tell you more about this another time if, you, if you'd have to, uh, if you'd be interested."
0: But where did this all come from? Does this come back from school or college, or is this the way things were at home?
1: Uh, I, I I don't know. I don't know. Like I, you know, my my mom is very entrepreneurial, but not an entrepreneur. Um, she's had little side gigs. Um, you know, she had a, a very. Very little, a great little birthday and wedding cake business running out of our kitchen for a couple of years. Um, my dad was a commercial director, uh, didn't own his own business, but I grew up listening to him make business calls in the car in the morning on my way to school. Um, uh, you know, they were very encouraging me in the early years to get out and make a few quid. You know, I'd take the lawnmower and I'd be doing the lawns around the the estate and knocking on doors, which is probably where I got comfortable, you know, knocking on doors. <laughs> um, and uh, and so I think the, all those little things probably helped. And then, you know, I met some really interesting people early in my life. Garrett Flower is a perfect example. Me and him met in, in university, our final year. We started a little... Um, uh, Pre, let's <laughs> say, a little uh, club promotion business out of his apartment in Temple Bar. Um, we would invite our our college friends to come and we would have uh, food and drink. Uh, they'd pay 10 euros in they could have all the little and Aldi food and drink that they wanted. Um, we'd have buskers come in and play music in the party and then we would get them into 21's nightclub at the time which makes me feel really old uh, on dealer street we'd get them in for free um because we had we were bringing, you know, maybe 15 20 people at a time and so we'd get for, yeah we'd negotiate a deal with the club. So I think even those earlier experiences, meeting the right people at the right time, I think you know, all have influence in the way you develop.
0: And what were you studying in college? Finance. Okay. I didn't know what I wanted
1: to do after my leave insert, um, and I had already started to get excited about the idea of maybe starting a business in sixth year, but I had no idea what industry. I had no idea what type of business. Um, but I knew. I figured that if if I did finance in university, that would probably be a decent foundation that I could
0: bring to anything. So you don't have any tech training as such? No,
1: not, only f- not formal. I mean, um, everything, probably the vast majority of technology uh, that I, learning that I've had is, is, has been through uh, tr- you know, trial and error and practical work with BuyMe.
0: Well, let's finish this off. I mean, where do you see BuyMe being in three and five years' time? Um,
1: well, I, th- I see BuyMe as continuing to provide massive value to the, re- the brick-and-mortar retail market in Ireland. I think, you know, we're already the largest same-day grocery e-commerce platform, um, and I think we're going to continue to expand. We've recently announced a, uh, an exciting partnership with Woody's. Um, which is our first non-food category. Um, and we, yeah, we, enter, we enter that very mindfully. Um, grocery is our core and everything we've built, all of our technology has been built around that category. Uh, it's complex, it's nuanced, and you, know, you need to be very focused. Um, we think the home DIY category complements our customer mission very well. And we think Woody's is a tremendous retailer uh, and we're very excited to work with them. And, and what we've built there is actually a, a very different type of solution. We've allowed them to launch their own app, the Woody's app, uh, on the buy me platform so it's an enterprise capability that we've now launched and and woody's has its will have its own app which will launch in the next week or two and they'll have their own app uh, for customers to, to to download and order from um, but it'll be the buy me infrastructure the buy me shopper network uh, that sit, and the buy me algorithms that sit underneath that business and facilitate it and I think that starts a very exciting conversation for us uh, into the future is to you know how could our platform be applied at an enterprise level to many other retailers with specific categories that could complement the overall architecture of our of our network and our platform and remember that demand curve is really important in the in the grand mix of things so if we are to explore the categories we'll be doing it in a very very thoughtful uh and and methodical way uh, and it'll be something that we think adds value to the overall network and ultimately will add value to the customer experience and our retail experience
0: so three to five years time how big will you be
1: good question um I don't know, is the answer. Um, you know, we've been dealing with a huge amount of, if, if you'd asked me that question in 2019, I never would have said we'd be this, necessarily the size we are today. I mean, in the in space of time, um, we've dealt with a lot of volatility. I think we've done a bloody good job of it. Um, I think we're on track to build a really exciting business uh, over the next few years. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to be taking each day as it comes.
0: I'm going to watch with great interest. Thank you very much, Devon, for Thanks being so much. with us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening. Devin Hughes, the latest guest on the Magnified series. If you liked it, please recommend to a friend, share it on social media, and come back and listen to many of the previous podcasts that we have done if you're new to this Magnified series. There's lots of people there, and there will be many more to come. Achievers, successful people telling their stories. But for now, from me, Matt Cooper, thank you for joining us.